This is The One Thing Podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Adam Rindy. The One Thing Podcast brings together leaders in functional and naturopathic medicine to discuss actionable information that may unlock puzzles in the areas of gut health, brain health, metabolism, and longevity. Please note, these episodes do not replace the opinion of your doctor. They are not intended to diagnose or treat any condition. Please discuss this information with your provider and discuss your own unique personal health history before adapting this information. Please subscribe to our episodes so that you can stay on top of the most current information in these areas of medicine. Cognitive decline is one of the most concerning aspects of aging and is a major cause of morbidity and mortality worldwide. As of 2014, the CDC stated that in populations older than 65 years of age, there was an estimated 5 million people suffering with dementia. This number is projected to be 14 million by the year 2060. There's a laundry list of ideas to prevent cognitive decline. However, few really address the root cause. My guest today is Dr. Diane Goodenow, a neuroscientist and inventor with ProDome Sciences. I was introduced to Dr. Goodenow by a mutual colleague, and he really struck a chord with me when he told me about plasmalogens. As we discussed dementia and its root causes, he shared how these unique chemicals of the membrane of our brain called plasmalogens can become deficient and that they may be one of the key links to understanding neurodegeneration and cognitive decline. In today's episodes, we discuss plasmalogens, what they are, how they are made, how they help our heart, brain, and immune system, and nervous tissue, and how they can be measured and potentially restored. Please help me in welcoming my guest, Dr. Diane Goodnow. Dr. Goodnow, welcome to the One Thing Podcast. I'm delighted to speak with you today. Well, thank you very much for inviting me, Dr. Rinde. I'm very excited to talk about plasmalogens and answer any questions you may have. You're welcome. Same here. I am very excited to learn more about this very interesting topic. Um, I think a great place for us to start is just to kind of hear a little bit about your background, um, about how you got involved with plasmalogens. I think it goes back to probably before 1999, doesn't it? Yes. So, well, the plasmalogens came afterwards. So, technically speaking, my background is in synthetic organic chemistry, and then my PhD is actually in the biochemical mechanisms of psychiatric disease. And so, my background is in the pharmaceutical industry, in medicinal chemistry, looking at drugs, structure, activity, relationships, and so on. And what happened in the late 90s, in late 80s, early 90s, was that this whole genomics revolution took off with this concept of being able to sequence a whole human genome and I, our ability to kind of look at health in a more global sense. But my background in biochemistry and chemistry, there was no really technology that was analogous to whole genome technology for small molecules and for the biochemistry of life. And so I had to take a little bit of a pause and uh, my first real invention was this invention of uh, complex sample analysis using high field mass spectrometry. And it really allowed us to do comprehensive, non-targeted analysis of the biochemistry of systems. And the real cool thing about it was that we could measure 
in large numbers of individuals, like because we could um, do clinical trial work as well as cell culture or animal model studies. And we, we applied this technology to human health and clinical trials. We were looking at case control studies, you know, people with cancer, without cancer, people with dementia, without dementia, so on. And when we did the dementia studies, we found that this class of molecules was reproducibly lower in individuals with dementia. And the more severe the dementia was in these individuals, the more severe the depletion in these molecules were. And when we did structure elucidation of what these actually were in the blood of these individuals, it turns out that they're plasmalogens. So that's how I really discovered plasmalogens. It really wasn't something that I was pre-thinking about. It was totally organically discovered using human epidemiological research. And from, so it was yeah. sort of an unexpected finding. Absolutely. And something we weren't looking for. Right. And it was actually, it, it, it's, um, it's both exciting and annoying at the same time, because when we figured out what these things were, it's not some trace level molecule. It's 20% of your entire brain, 60% of the ethanolamines in your, or even 80% in your synaptic cleft and in the, the glial white matter um, are comprised of these plasmalogens. But yet they're not really in your normal everyday lexicon of human biochemistry. And so that's where the story keeps getting more and more interesting. So that's where the plasmalogen story came in. And then my background in synthetic chemistry and in biochemical mechanisms of disease really started taking it one step at a time. And from there, we looked at much more detailed studies as to the biochemical mechanisms of plasmalogens. We synthesized um, precursors, did structure activity relationships to understand which plasmalogens did which things. And... Then it just became one of those really obvious situations where these this depletion in plasmalogens was preceding this neurological decline. And in terms of cognition and dementia, these were the systems of the brain that were the most susceptible um, and the most sensitive to plasmalogen depletion situations. So that's kind of where it all came in. And then and now we can restore them. That's really interesting. So I'm curious, like this is 2020 and since you came across plasmalogens, I mean, you've published a lot of papers about them. You've really done a really thorough scientific investigation. Um, what, how did you go about that? It seems like it, it would be almost something that you would want to get out into the world fast um, with exactly. the growing incidence of dementia. Well, see, when we first discovered these plasmalogens, and I patented them, and I patented their associations, it was really this cognition and Alzheimer's focus. But the more we studied them, and of course, plasmalogens are natural. So at that time, I had my pharmaceutical hat on, and I was designing non-natural plasmalogen precursors that I could get composition of matter patents on. So I patented a whole bunch of plasmalogen precursors. But... That restricts you to this FDA drug program where you have a very narrowly defined indication for a particular product. And as this research got more and more involved and we saw the association with Parkinson's and association with stroke and our ability to restore white matter in multiple sclerosis and on and on and on, 
it became very clear that we were dealing with not just you know a specific Alzheimer's drug model, but really a generalized neurological deficiency. And it really looks at a concept of neurodegeneration, of which cognition is the canary in the coal mine. And once that became clear, it became much more clear to say, you know, this drug-based approach really isn't the way to go. And so what I did from that time is design what's a completely 100% natural product. It's still um, scientifically designed and synthesized as a highly pure product, but it's 100% natural. And so now we can deal with, now we can deliver it and um, distribute it worldwide to individuals with the same basically pharmaceutical vigor, but in a completely natural model that doesn't require any, um, you know, phase two, phase three clinical trial design models. And that it's not, it's not restricted to one indication. Okay, great. And um, I think a good place to start um, from here would be to just do like a definition of plasmalogens both from a standpoint of more of a basic definition and then more of a detailed definition. If you could just maybe kind of give us a basic overview and then kind of dive in a little bit deeper to the nitty gritties of the. And it's just such an interesting story. These plasmalogens are just plain intriguing because first of all, you have lots of them and, but it's a non-redundant system. So at the basic level, plasmalogens are phospholipids. Okay, so they are part of the phospholipid bilayer of all the cells of the body. So you have a trillion cells in your body, and then within those cells, you have mitochondria and and peroxisomes, organelles. Every cell and every organelle in the body is separated from each other by a phospholipid bilayer, the membranes. And this is what the human body allows itself to compartmentalize, and so we can have the complex systems that we have in the human body because we get this separation by membranes. And so these plasmalogens are critical for that. And they're really critical in terms of the transport of materials in and out. And they they modify the fluidity. So we studied them in terms of cholesterol regulation, in, in terms of amyloid precursor processing, in terms of vesicular fusion and release of neurotransmitters, for instance. And so these plasmalogens are really critical for membrane fluidity and membrane structure integrity. Now, they're very, the criticalness of plasmalogens is evident because children that are born with genetic mutations that block the, the human body's manufacture of plasmalogens, they have extremely reduced long, um, lifespans um, and their mortality. Depending upon the severity of the deficiency, they can live as little as a, a year or so or maybe up to 10, 10 years. And so there's quite a human mortality issue with that, um, with plasmalogens. So the question is, is something so critical, how is there, how are we making it? And the, the power of the plasmalogens is also its Achilles heel. So unlike a lot of your membrane structure, your plasmalogens do not require any um, um, essential nutrients. They're manufactured in your paroxysms of your liver by basic molecules like your basic fats will will generate plasmalogens. It's not like a DHA where you need an omega-3 or arachidonic acid where you need omega-6 precursors from the diet. There's essentially no dietary requirement 
for your body to make plasmalogens. So your body has a capacity to make lots of plasmalogens, but, and it doesn't have this, and so it makes these things as sac sacrificial lambs. So your body makes plasmalogens, and the last step in the plasmalogen biosynthesis is this special little bond it has called the vinyl ether bond, which makes it an incredibly potent antioxidant. And so it's in all your membranes, and it's used to protect these other nutrients that you we need to get from our diet, like our omega-3s. And so your plasmalogens are the sacrificial um, lamb, if you will. It'll get oxidized first to protect your DHA and arachidonic acid and your other essential oxidatively stress-sensitive molecules. And your body can normally make lots of these things for long periods of time. The strange thing about them is that just because we can make them, and there's a significant amount of them in our tissues, the the one quality that makes them so special makes them unavailable as a dietary source. So the vinyl ether bond that gives the plasmalogens this, this power can't survive the stomach acids in the gastric. When you, so when you eat plasmalogens, so when I eat a nice juicy steak, um, I'm not getting many plasmalogens in my body because the stomach acids digest the plasmalogens before they get in my body. So even though your body has a good ability to make them, you have to make them. Like we, we can't get them from anywhere else. And so as we get older and the age-related decline in liver function and other situations, that at some point in time, our ability to manufacture plasmalogens becomes less than our consumption. And we have no other way around it. So either we find lifestyle ways to stimulate plasmalogen biosynthesis, which can be done by exercise training and some other things, or we need to find some novel supplement route that can bypass this acid degradation issue. And that's what we designed is plas natural plasmalogen precursors. It's basically like L-DOPA for Parkinson's. Like L-DOPA is a biochemical precursor of dopamine. And we've basically developed the equivalent for plasmalogens, which is orally bioavailable, bypasses the gut act, uh, acids, goes into your liver, converts into your final plasmalogen, and then can distribute it for the rest of your body. So that's kind of the simple story of plasmalogens. Well, you, you, yeah, and you said some interesting things. One of them is um, how we are not as effective as of making plasmalogens as we get older. Well, where are they made? So they're made in your liver. And they're made in the organelle of your liver cells called peroxisomes. And peroxisomes are, so you're, all the cells of the body have two main organelles for energy generation and synthesis. One is the mitochondria, and lots of people know what mitochondria. So the mitochondria are your internal combustion engines. They take fats and carbohydrates, convert them to a little molecule called acetyl-CoA, and then burns that into carbon dioxide and water. So, it, so... Mitochondria are 100% catabolic. They're supposed to be pure energy-burning engines to generate energy. So they don't. Mitochondria don't make things. Mitochondria consume and generate energy. Peroxisomes are the brother or sister of mitochondria, and peroxisomes are anabolic. So peroxisomes make things, but they they digest fats and lipids into acetyl-CoA, but this acetyl-CoA is used to make all the cholesterol in your body, used to do fatty acid elongation, and they also make your, your plasmalogens. But peroxisomes are called peroxisomes because they make peroxide. 
And so they're oxidatively demanding cells. And that's why you make your plasmalogens in your liver and transport them to your brain. So even though the whole body can make plasmalogens, technically speaking, it chooses not to do so because of the oxidatively demanding biosynthesis. And so they're made in your liver, transported basically via HDL particles in the blood supply and goes into the, into the brain. And so people with high plasmalogens typically have high HDL levels. So HDL levels and plasmalogens also affect your reverse cholesterol transport by improving cholesterol clearance from your cells, which we published pretty extensively. So yeah, they're made in your liver and then transported into, through, through the blood supply to the cells of the body and the brain. Got it. Okay. So fast forwarding a little bit to the disease process and dementia and that progression to Alzheimer's disease. And there are several types of dementia, of course, but the kind of classic model with um, beta amyloid plaque and um, the tangles and the kind of model we think of just kind of basic uh, model for dementia and Alzheimer's. How how are plasmalogens featured in that process? That's a really good question. And, and it's a really important one because we, we start changing definitions of words. And I like, there's actually two phrases I'd like to draw upon. One is Occam's razor by William of Occam says, plurality should not be assumed without validation. Basically, if you have a hypothesis, choose the simplest one until a more complex one is proven to be more accurate. And the second one is from Einstein, which I love, is which says, make things as simple as possible, but no simpler, which means don't oversimplify things to the point that they have no meaning. And I think sometimes what we've done is we've conflated the pathological characterization of a disease with the function of a disease. So Alzheimer's used to be called senile dementia of the Alzheimer's type. And it's a path, it's a post-mortem diagnosed disease, which says, hey, here's a person with dementia, which is a functional assessment. And let's ask the question, can we characterize it? We can we can we give it a, a library code? Is it Lewy body dementia, which means here's a person with dementia and they have Lewy bodies? Is it Alzheimer's dementia? So here's a person with dementia and they have amyloid and plaque tangles. Is it vascular dementia? Here's a person with dementia and there's white matter issues and, you know, stroke dementia and so on and so forth. So dementia itself is a functional process, which is pretty simple and clearly articulated in terms of cholinergic function in the brain. Dementia is the reduced function of cholinergic neurons and the post-synaptic -trans post transmission of acetylcholine. That fundamentally is dementia. And then we can argue that what are the other causes or what are the other things associated with it? But at a pure human neurochemical perspective, that's dementia. And that's why the, like the acetylcholinesterase inhibitor drugs work because they work on that and they work transiently. Okay. They don't work forever. They work for a short period of time, but they do work and they do work because they are cholinergic drugs in that neuron, the synapse. So, Plasmalogens, why the question, so sorry for belaboring that point. So the question is, why do plasmalogen deficiencies usually get show up as cognitive deficits first? 
So cognition is really the canary in the coal mine. So when you have neurodegeneration, especially neuronal degeneration of plasmalogens, the gray matter, which is the, the neuron density, typically decreases first, and it'll actually suck plasmalogens out of your white matter for a period of time. But you're seeing a generalized decrease in plasmalogens across the entire brain, not just the cholinergic system. But the cholinergic neurons are uniquely sensitive and susceptible to a plasmalogen deficiency because they're unique versus other neurons in the brain. So first and foremost, plasmalogens work at the synaptic cleft and they're required for membrane fusion. So all the vesicles that contain neurotransmitters in the presynaptic neuron, when you get an uh, action potential pulse to create a nerve transmission event, those presynaptic vesicles have to translocate to the presynaptic neuron membrane and then release their neurotransmitters into the synapse. That is a biophysical process. Okay, there's a, there's a physical translocation and a physical fusing of membranes and a physical release of neurotransmitters. Plasmalogens work directly on that process. Um, you, your membranes require polyunsaturated plasmalogens to actually do membrane fusion. If we deplete membranes of plasmalogens, they don't fuse. So you get an action potential, the vesicles move to the presynaptic neuron um, membrane and they just stick there. They don't actually release their contents. And so that's why we're seeing such dramatic effects with the plasmalogen supplement with Prodome Neuro, heart more than we even expected. We see these symptomatic observations within three to four weeks quite often in individuals. And so it works directly on the synaptic cleft, membrane uh, fusion and release of neurotransmitters. Now, the reason why cholinergic neurons are sensitive is that they have a, they have a unique neurotransmitter reuptake process. All the other neurons, like your GABA neurons and your glutamate neurons and your serotonin neurons, your noradrenaline and dopamine and so on, they, when a nerve, a presynaptic neuron releases its neurotransmitters into the synaptic cleft and then it sucks them back up, it sucks them back up using these transport proteins that are specifically designed for each of these neurotransmitters. And most of the time, for all the other neurons in the human body, that protein is always present on the presynaptic neuron um, membrane. But cognition is used, uses acetylcholine. And acetylcholine is really the only neurotransmitter in the brain where the neurotransmitter that is released from the neuron isn't the same thing that's taken back up into the neuron. So the neuron releases acetylcholine, which acts on the postsynaptic receptor, but when it comes off, it gets digested into choline and acetyl-CoA. So it's actually choline that comes back up into the presynaptic neuron. And the problem is, is that all the cells of your body require choline. So every single cell in the human body has choline receptors and choline transport proteins. And so the cholinergic neurons have a special protein called the choline high affinity transporter. And that's found on the vesicles. So what's, what happens in cholinergic neurons is that the ability to reuptake the choline is also dependent upon membrane fusion, which other neurons are not. So if the 
vesicles don't fuse and, re and release their contents, not only do you have a re reduction in acetylcholine being released, you're actually starving the cell of the choline it requires to recharge itself. And so what happens when you get a plasmalogen deficiency is that these neurons, not, they become starved of choline, even though the choline is around. And say so it initiates what's called an autocannibalism cascade, and it starts digesting its own membranes um, to get choline. And so that's why when you see a generalized neurodegeneration or plasmalogen deficiency, and so I call um, dementia is the canary in the coal mine. It's kind of the first neuron system to reach a critical point that we can see clinical symptomology from it. But make no mistake, the entire, the entire brain is being inhibited with a plasmalogen deficiency. We just typically see symptoms of dementia first. Okay. And that's gotcha. why. And that, that's where the link comes up. So. I see. Because, you know, some of the studies that I've read that you've done talked about um, also the beta secretase enzyme and alpha secretase enzyme and how, you know, you can kind of see um, the differences in uh, the biochemistry and the pathology in, patient, in uh, patients who are dealing with dementia and Alzheimer's based on the activity of these enzymes. Can you go into that a little bit? Because that was interesting sure. to me. Yeah, so the whole amyloid hypothesis of dementia is a very interesting one. So amyloid, first and foremost, amyloid is real, okay? It's a real molecule, and you shouldn't have lots of it in your brain. So having lots of amyloid in the brain is a bad thing. No one's going to say it's otherwise. And so amyloid is a really good biomarker, but it's not a biomarker of dementia. It's a biomarker of membrane deficiencies. And I think this is where people get... So amyloid is really you know, a, a bystander of a bad accident. So the plasmalogen deficiency causes, so amyloid is obviously a natural molecule and it starts from an, a protein called an amyloid precursor protein. And there's two pathways that the amyloid precursor protein goes through. One is called the alpha secretase pathway and one is the beta secretase pathway. So the alpha secretase is the healthy, about 95% of all your APP gets processed through this healthy process. And only 5% typically is being metabolized by beta secretase. So what happens though, is that these two proteins live in two different parts of the biological membrane. The amyloid, the alpha secretase likes to be in the phospholipid rich region um, where it's nice and fluid. And the beta secretase likes to be in what's called the lipid raft region, which has high levels of cholesterol and high levels of phosphatidylcholine, and those are nice rigid membranes. And so your biological membranes are not one homogeneous thing. It's a, there's a distribution. There's, there's regions that have different levels of fluidity. And so what happens when you get older, this whole concept we've known for, I don't know, 100 years, this whole hardening of the arteries thing. One of the things that we know that's a very reproducible observation with aging is that as we get older, the percent of cholesterol in our membranes starts to creep upwards. And the percent of phospholipids, but specifically ethanolamine phospholipids, goes down. So this ratio of, cho of cholesterol to plasmalogens goes up with age. And so what we found in cell cultures, when we study amyloid processing, when we selectively elevate DHA plasmalogen levels in membranes, we can dose-dependently 
um, increase the alpha secretase and we decrease amyloid A beta 42, which is the protein that's, that goes on to form the amyloid plaques by, by doing so. So we can completely regulate amyloid 42 processing. And then when we look at post-mortem brain tissue in humans, the same thing happens. So humans that have high levels of DHA plasmalogens in their brain have low levels of amyloid in their brain. So yeah. amyloid is basically a biomarker of, of low plasmalogens in the brain, basically. Yeah. It's amazing to me because when I hear, when I read this or came across this um, first, I was shocked because I've heard how difficult it is to shift this environment and how many drugs have failed at trying to do that. Well, it's, and it's, anti-amyloid therapies were never, ever going to work. And we knew that since the 80s. Like, this is not, this is not a surprising outcome. Okay, more people, if you take a look at post-mortem analysis, and if you ask a neuropathologist to try to diagnose dementia in a patient post-mortem based upon the pathology, it's almost a flip of a coin accuracy. Okay, 30% of cognitively normal people, 100% cognitively normal people will have pathological amyloid deposits and they will meet the criteria for moderate to severe Alzheimer's on death. And so from a pathological perspective, these people have full-blown Alzheimer's pathology, but they have no cognitive impairment. They are completely normal. And you'll have the, and we've known this for a long, long time. And so this concept of um, the amyloid, so if we, when we do the post-mortem analysis, when we, we look at amyloid levels, we look at tau levels, we look at cholesterol, and we, and we correct for the plasmalogen levels. If you correct for the plasmalogen levels in the brain, amyloid has no statistical significant association with cognition whatsoever. And so it's a good biomarker. It's an interesting biomarker, but it's clearly not causative. And we've known this for a long time. And the hope was that they'd find some, in some people, people with, with certain mutations, yes, if you have a, a particular um, genetic susceptibility to hyperamyloid, then that could be an issue um, of, of you know, doing amyloid. But for most of us, amyloid is, um, is, is a coincidence. It's still a bad thing. It's a good biomarker. It says something is not right okay, with your membranes, but it's not actually causing dementia. Amyloid is not a little Pac-Man chewing your neurons up. It's just not. Gotcha. Thanks for clarifying that. Uh, that's really helpful. So... Um, going a little bit further into this, I, I think you mentioned a couple of potential epigenetic moves that people can do to influence their plasmalogens. Um, obviously, aging or the health of the peroxisome, I imagine, would be one factor to think about. But you said exercise. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So if you take a look at First of all, the human body is designed to be as lazy as possible, right? We're, we're very efficient, and it will not do anything unless it's forced to do so. So the whole point is, can I drop you in the middle of the desert, and can you walk across this desert and survive? And so we're balanced. Our arms swing properly. Our legs swing properly. And you're, you're going to fundamentally use your liver and your lungs and your circulatory system for 99% of all bodily functions. 
and you only use your other musculatures when needed on a temporary basis. And so what happens as we get older, we end up having these dormant systems that have been kind of underutilized for our lifetime. And so in the elderly, when you start giving them resistance training regiments where they start working on their biceps and the triceps and the quadriceps in a way that they don't normally use them, we can activate the biochemistry in these cells and they become basically almost like mini livers working in the circulatory system. So it can do a lot of the work that the liver is not doing anymore. And that kind of, when you stimulate the paroxysms in your muscles, they start making plasmalogens for you. And so you can make your own, so you can stimulate the production by extra, by moderate resistance training. You can also reduce the consumption of plasmalogens by modifying the diet to a, a low inflammatory diet and making sure you have good levels of of anti-inflammatory support molecules like N-acetylcysteine and acetylcarnitines, those things that can maintain your mitochondrial function. And so it's a balancing act as we get older. Can we reduce the consumption of plasmalogens and can we stimulate the production? And to a certain degree, you can you can do both of those things. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Uh, the so let's let's take a a person that may be at more risk for dementia and Alzheimer's to so someone with like an APOE4 um, SNP. And so for the listeners, you know, this is a genetic predisposition um, that puts you at a high risk for developing early, early Alzheimer's disease. What if they were to approach um, as soon as possible, like a pl plasmalogen um, approach. Take us through what would be some steps, like what would they do? Blood draws, um, what kind of lab markers would they look at and then go from there? Perfect. Okay. So ApoE4 is a great story. And it's, I think it's, it's, um, it's a poster child of saying, how can I, or can I biochemically overcome my genetic risk factors? And the answer is clearly yes. We just published a major research project on that last year, basically showing that people, APOE4 carriers with high plasmalogens had no increased risk of dementia. So you can override and you can neutralize your genetic risk. You need to understand what your genetic risk is doing though. So in APOE, like the three alleles, the E2, the E3, and the E4, um, their fundamental biochemical activity is cholesterol transport. These three proteins have the ability to transport protein to transport cholesterol with different levels of efficiency. And it's all related to your reverse cholesterol transport capability. So ApoE4 carriers have a reduced ability to clear cholesterol from cells. So when your cell makes cholesterol, okay, you make cholesterol inside the internal of your cell, and then the free cholesterol goes into the plasma membrane. And that plasma membrane in the free cholesterol form will esterify the cholesterol and then either it'll get recycled internally by LDL particles or it will be taken up by HDL particles externally and circulated back to the liver. And that's called your reverse cholesterol transport system. Okay. And so people with an E4 carrier, that E4 protein is very inefficient at clearing cholesterol from the membrane. And so people with an E4, people with an E4 allele end up having higher levels of membrane cholesterol. 
in their in their systems. And this whole concept about amyloid. So E4 carriers have high levels of amyloid in their brain, fundamentally. But the amyloid is a biomarker of membrane problems. So it's a, if you have high levels of cholesterol in your membranes, beta secretase likes the um, um, cholesterol-rich regions. So they have overactive beta secretase, which means they have overactive uh, A-beta-42 formation. So people with the E4 carrier on brain scans will have, on average, higher levels of amyloid. But not all E4 carriers will have high amyloid. Okay, It's just a statistical averaging thing. So if you have, so for an E4 carrier, that's your predisposition is of poor cholesterol transport. If you're an E2 carrier, you've got extra good cholesterol transport. So if you're an E4 carrier, then you need to be able to counterbalance this cholesterol transport problem. And that's where plasmalogens come in. So plasmalogens work on the opposite direction. So your E4, your HDL care molecules are, they're, they're the ones that come and pick the cholesterol, the esterified cholesterol from the plasma membrane and take it back to the liver. And you have E3 or E4 or E2, and those two, those will have different levels. Plasmalogens, they rather they push the cholesterol out of the cell. So if you have high levels of plasmalogens, the esterification process is ramped up and it is pushing plasmalogens out of the cell. So it can counteract and support the E4. So, so an E4 carrier with high plasmalogens has normal cholesterol transport. So their cholesterol, so the, the genetic risk associated with the E4 is eliminated because you have you have restored that biochemical mechanism. And then we showed that with a large group of people, over 1,200 people we showed, and we looked at the genotype and their plasmalogen levels, and basically clearly showed that um, your plasmalogen levels can neutralize your E4 genetic risk. And so it's just, a, it's, it's based upon the mechanism of that process. So. So if they're working with your company, there's sort of a blood panel that they can look at just to measure the plasmalogen exactly. content. Yeah, so so for an E4 carrier, it's even more dangerous to have low plasmalogens because then they have a double whammy. Okay, they have, they have poor export of cholesterol and they have poor pushing of cholesterol out of the cells. So yeah, you definitely, if you're an E4 carrier, you definitely don't want to have low plasmalogens. So yeah, so we can measure the plasmalogen levels and the HDL levels and your HDL to LDL ratios, which you want to ramp up. And so for an E4 carrier, really getting good paroxysomal function, you know, fasting, proper diet, and then the obviously the plasmalogen supplementation, we can take it over the top now and completely restore that cholesterol regulation in E4 carriers. So yeah. Okay. So, so then how... How long after taking supplementation would you expect the levels to normalize? Is it a year-long process or is it three months? What's the general time frame if someone's coming from a low standpoint? Well, it depends on how much dose you take. So I personally, like I've we've tested it in ourselves, and I took a 100 milligram per kilogram dose, and I doubled my plasmalogen levels in 24 hours. So the next day, my levels were up. Okay. Now, that's, that's 10 times what we recommend as a normal dose. All of our studies in animals at a 10 milligram per kilogram dose, about two weeks, your plasmalogen levels are doubled. Um, and so basically we, we offer a bottle of plasmalogen oil, which is 30 mils. 
and it contains 900 milligrams of plasmalogens per dose. So it's, it's extremely highly concentrated. By the end of your first bottle, people should have normal plasmalogen levels. Okay, if not, if not slightly higher than normal plasmalogen levels. And then from there on, you can maintain them um, indefinitely. Gotcha. Okay. Well, um, is there any sort of warnings or precautions that um, people should take if, if they're going down this road of considering plasmalogen supplementation? Uh, nothing regarding the plasmalogen part of the molecule, but we gave, there's, there's, there's two components that give the plasmalogens their activity. One is the plasmalogen backbone itself, which is what you can't get in your diet. And that's very much what we, we have to supply with, with our precursor. The second is the type of fatty acid that's on it. So the DHA and DPA, the polyunsaturated omega-3 um, long-chain fatty acid that we put at SN2, that's what gives us a neurological activity. Now, that will have the same issues that you want to monitor if you're on a current omega-3 supplement. Okay, so people can look at um, blood pressure or, or um, if you're on a blood thinning regimen, high doses of omega-3s are, are indicated for keeping an eye on that. Um, but usually it's pretty high levels that you have to watch. But other than what you would normally watch for someone on a DHA supplement is which is the only issue you would have with um, the plasmalogen supplement because that's what it is. Okay. Yeah. So one of the things I came across is that the way that you manufacture or, or synthesize your plasmalogens is that they enter into the biochemical pathway in a way that's um, going to be better, better absorbed and better bio, better bioavailability. Are there certain um, kind of knockoff products or knockoff uh, kind of attempts to, to influence this pathway that don't, don't work as well? Yes. And, you know, I feel like I'm really bombarding your listeners with biochemistry <laughs> lessons here. Um, and I apologize for getting into the weeds on some of this stuff. But yeah, it's really important because, okay, so there's two aspects, right? There's the dietary process where you have to ingest it and your gut and your, your, um, your lipases will do some metabolism for you before you get into your blood supply. And then you, um, can distribute it to the rest of your body. So plasmalogens, so if you take extracts of animal products that have plasmalogens in them, okay, so like people have looked at those molecules. When you ingest a phospholipid, your pancreatic lipases in your, in your upper GI tract, they take off the SN2 position and you absorb phospholipids as lysophospholipids, so your lysophosphatylcholines which don't have the SN2 position on them, which is the critical component of our targeting in membranes. That's one issue for, for phospholipids. Second issue is plasmalogens in the dietary supply get digested by your gut lipases uh, or acid digestion, not, not an enzymatic, but an actual chemical digestion in your stomach acids. The pH of the stomach is between 1.5 and 3. So it's very, very acidic. It's hydrochloric acid. So our stomachs are concentrated hydrochloric acid. And so when you put this vinyl ether bond into your stomach, and if you're, buying, if you're eating pure plasmalogens that, that have the vinyl ether bond, you're just creating a chemical reaction in your stomach, creating aldehydes, which is not a good thing. And so you can't really do that. And so what, the molecules that we've done is designed very specifically 
as an ether, they were called alkyl acyl glycerols. And when you, when you eat these molecules of ours, that the natural gut lipase takes off the SN3 position. So we actually have a very highly bioavailable DHA supplement. So it's kind of an extra bang for your buck there. But what's important is that the, the DHA at the SN2 position gets absorbed into the bloodstream and goes to the liver. So we can actually target the actual phospholipid we want. And that's why so for prodrome neuro, we provide the DHA at the SN2, which is really important for your neurons. But for, for younger people, with say women with multiple sclerosis or children with autism, that do not have a DHA problem. So they don't, they don't technically have um, a paroxysomal biosynthesis problem, which is our problem as we get older. They have a problem caused by inflammation. So those people don't really need, they don't need extra DHA. In fact, extra DHA in the young people can be pro-inflammatory if it's given too much. It's a long-chain fatty acid. Like we, as older people, need them, but younger people don't. And so prodrome glia um, has omega-9 at the SN2 position. Okay, so it, it delivers, and so all the white matter, like the insulation of your neurons, like the white matter tracts, those do not contain, those, those plasmalogens do not contain DHA. They only contain your short-chain fatty acids. So prodrome glia is designed for people with multiple sclerosis or children with autism to deliver those precursors for remyelination and for white matter restoration. So that's why... Um, it's all, the only the alkyl acylglycerols that allow you to actually target individual plasmalogen species. Um, if you if you want to do do it the other way, you have to actually do um, injection. You have to find sources for injection. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important that the listeners hear this because you know there, since the dietary supplement industry is not highly regulated, it's really important to understand like that what you're taking is actually going to work as it's intended um, because there's just yeah. so many and chances to jump into. Well, and I also looked at like you, you can get natural alkyl glycerols, like for instance, in shark liver oil, right? But they contain lots of squalene and they contain saturated fatty acids. So the, the type of plasmalogen is important because if I put a saturated fatty acid, if I put something like a, like a stearic acid at the SN2 position, I'll actually cause, cause an increase in cholesterol levels. This is why shark liver oil has the exact opposite effect as, as, a, as a DHA plasmalogen oil because they contain... So the, it's important that the right plasmalogen species is provided for the right indication. It is a scientifically you know, mediated process. It's not just a one-size-fits-all. Now, of course, in the elderly, for us, as we get older... It's pretty. It's an easy story because, you know, the DHA we all need it, um, and this basically replaces your other DHA supplements fundamentally. Gotcha. Well, um, we're getting towards the end of our visit, and I was hoping that you could leave us with some parting thoughts, and then tell us a little bit more about Prodrome and um, just how people can find out about you. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, really cool thing about this is that I've been doing this now for about. 30 years, my background in biochemical mechanisms of disease. So it's been a long time. And my most of my work has always been focused on find the disease, kill the disease, right? You, you find this disease and you want to find the biochemical process and the prodrome of a disease. And what we've been really working towards now is the prodrome of health. How do I create what's called biochemical reserve? 
And so it's an issue. Of, it's not about. I can talk about these people with deficient plasmalogens and their increased risk for dementia, but the people with the top ten percent of plasmalogen levels, they have an eighty percent reduction in dementia. Okay, a ninety a ninety five year old person with high plasmalogens in their blood has the same probability of living to age one hundred as a sixty five year old with low plasmalogens has of living to age 70. Like those are really scary numbers. But it, it, indi it indicates that, you know what, we've got our head screwed on backwards here. We've got this, we've got this disease-focused mindset of saying, here's our, here's our negative prodromes. These are, the, these are the biochemical deficiencies that will lead to disease, right? But we're forgetting the other side of the coin. Okay, you know, this is agnostic. It's like nuclear technology you can use it to build a bomb or you can use it to give energy to an entire city it's how you use it and so mm -hmm. and so in biochemistry perspective we can look at positive programs how do we create biochemical reserve okay create biochemical savings accounts for the body that are there when you need them and you can do it for your your plasmalogens you can do it for your mitochondria and so that's where really for program sciences is moving forward is this biochemical engineering of individuals using your own health information to get people into this biochemical reserve situation, like a biochemical savings account for a rainy day. And I think that's kind of where I've really shifted my focus over the last few years, especially since I've gone from the pharmaceutical industry into the natural products industry and saying, you know what, let's, and, and our, the availability of, 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 targeted biochemical interventions is actually quite large. Um, and so that's kind of where, so you can look at our website, protomsciences.com and um, we're available there. And then our, obviously the Prodome Glia and the Prodome Neuro products. And then we look at GTAs and other, a, a very large swath of biochemical systems that are critical. And it's about triaging. It's about taking care of the big things first and then triaging down your decision tree, and and as you get down the tree, you know deal with the smaller issues after you deal with the big issues. And these plasmalogens are clearly one of these these big issues that need to get dealt with. That's wonderful. Well, we all know people who are at risk for dementia, people dealing with MS, autism, um, Parkinson's disease. I mean, this is just a really enlightening topic and I'm excited to bring this to my patients and to my loved ones. So thank you for being on here with us and for myself, you know, and, and I'm going to look at it on myself as well and do some levels. So thank you for, for being on here. And, uh, you know, we really appreciate your time. It'd be great to catch up another time and go into some of the other topics that we explored. Definitely. I definitely will be available. And, um, Certainly, it's some of the before and after events that we're seeing with individuals is is pretty exciting. So it's it's really nice to be able to to help people, and um, and that's that's and, what we're doing. Uh, and do you have any case studies that are out there um, published yet, or is that something that's in the future? Not published, just anecdotal. I'm getting emails and texts from people, especially caregivers with dementia patients, saying remarkable things. People waking up, that's wonderful. carrying in conversations, dancing in their wheelchairs. It's it's really kind wow. of crazy. It's really really crazy. So it's um, I think it's a it's a we're seeing people with 
increasing their their sleep is better, they're calmer, and so we're, we're the human like obviously we do all this preclinical work and we do all these animal studies, but the human animal is pretty complex, right? We have lots of things going on in our bodies, and so and there's lots of neurological issues, and I'm personally interested in in exercise because all of your peripheral neurons are all acetylcholine neurons as well. So there's a long ways. We're just, we're just scratching the surface. This is now the, the real exciting thing is that we have a very safe, very effective way of targeting and elevating blood plasmalogen levels and membrane plasmalogen levels. So now we're going to start seeing really what we can achieve in the human population. And individuals are going to be able to um, take control of their own health and they'll be able to determine what's working, what's not working, and whether or not there's additional things that they can add, you know, add to their regimens. So beautiful. Well, thank you for your time and uh, continue to stay well. And uh, we'll, we'll catch up with you down the road. You got it. Thank you for listening to today's episode with Dr. Diane Goodnow. I hope you enjoyed learning about plasmalogens as much as I did. I'm excited to be offering the test for plasmalogens in my clinic now and also offering um, carrying the line of plasmalogen supplements. Um, If you need more information on that, please get in touch with me as I think this is a very worthwhile pursuit, especially if you're at high risk for dementia, um, heart disease, and have immune deficiencies. So thank you again for tuning in. Please share this episode with your colleagues and friends and continue to listen. We really appreciate it. Um, It's been exciting to bring these most interesting guests to you and share information that may hopefully unlock some of the puzzles that you're trying to solve in your own health, in the health of your patients, and the health of your loved ones. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll see you next time.